Uh, we had the great pleasure to have the last manager to bring the Mets to the promised land, uh, Davey Johnson, manager of the world champion 1986 Mets with us in studio. Check out his new book, Davey Johnson, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond, uh, written along with Eric Sherman. And uh, Davey, thanks so much for coming in. Well, it's nice to be here. Uh, everything's fine. <laughs> uh, you know, I love New York, the great fans here, and you know, I love the Mets, and so... Uh, you know, it's good to be up here. I mean, of course, my wife loves to come up here because she shops all the time. It costs me a fortune. <laughs> what was it like for you to, to go through and, and put together this book? As you write numerous times in there, you're not a person to look back a whole lot, and yet this forces you to do that. You know, I read the proofs when I, after I talked to Eric Sherman, and we talked about, you know, he made it very easy for me because he would ask me about portions of my life, and it was very easy to talk about him. Uh, even though some, there were very many uncomfortable times to talk about, I could do that. But as far as me, want me to read the book again? No, I won't read the damn book again. <laughs> uh, it's hard living in the past with some of the bad things that happened to you. Uh, but it's for a good cause, and I hope it helps some uh, young players and young prospective managers uh, do their job better. Yeah, the, the book is tremendous. Now, look, if full disclosure, Davey, you're talking to, I mean, I've watched 86, you to remember, probably 100 times. I've been waiting to ask you this for 30 years as a six or seven-year-old. Yeah, there you go. He's got the championship ring showing it off. What were you doing bringing in Doug Sisk all those games, Davey, driving us nuts? Well, that's why I had to take roll aids, man. <laughs> I mean, but he, he always got out of the jams. He was, uh, you know, he had the nasty sinker and kind of like a lot of other pitchers I've had along the line, but he was... He did force me to use Rolades, and uh, but he he got he got the job done in the end, but it did cause us a lot of heart heart grief. On yeah, and I know like, I'm obviously in jest. I know you talk, caught a lot of flack for that years ago when he had a, he caught a lot of flack from the fans and hateful letters and all those things. But ultimately, as you mentioned, it led to some Rolades commercials, potentially led to some money, and Sisk maybe caught a little. Of, he was one of those guys that caught the ire of the fans. There's always that guy on the team. Sisk was that guy for you for many years. Well, there's no question about it. But I mean, he did get the job done. Uh, he was hard to watch sometimes because he'd, uh, he'd throw a lot of pitches up there that weren't even close to the strike zone, but when he did <laughs> throw them in there, they couldn't hit them. But uh, I, that, that was just he was just one of the many characters I had. I mean, we could name a hundred of them. Yeah, right. Characters that uh, uh, probably wouldn't be on the front of Vogue magazine. You personally, you have incredible confidence that came through from your first press conference as a member of the Mets saying, you know, Frank Cashin, thanks to him, he was smart enough to hire me. And you go back to your Orioles years, to giving Earl Weaver, uh, you know, optimized lineups that he could use when you're 26 years old. But when you're managing, did you always have that same kind of confidence, even if you had it within yourself, uh, to, you know, be able to give it to a Cisco or, you know, your own players? Well, you know, my first year, I, I, I think in the Mets, uh, in 84, was probably my best year because we outscored, got outscored by 18 runs. And we were 18 games over 500. You figured that out. Mm. Uh, I had some holes on the ball club, some holes in the bullpen, and some holes on the bench. We fixed them. And by the time 86 came around, I said, boys, we're not going to just win. We're going to dominate. And we did. Now, you had a lot. I mean, at times throughout the book, it says that you don't have a lot of influence or you ha you didn't have as much influence later years as putting a team together. But then you just reference the point where you guys put the team together. You It seemed that you had input to say, OK, I need a right handed bat off the bench a la Tim Tuffle. I want to go get a veteran guy like Bobby Ojeda to fill out this staff. How much input did you have with Frank Cashin building that team from what it was in 84, 85 to eventually the world champs in 86? I think I had a lot of influence. And um because I, I, I told him, first of all, when I first got hired, I said, 
first of all, get rid of Lou Gorman. He's your assistant. I want to talk to just you. And fortunately, Lou Gorman went to the Boston Red Sox. So it was just me and Frank. And I'd tell him everything I thought about the club, one-on-one, and who I needed, where our weaknesses were, who I needed to replace, uh, Hojo, Ray Knight, you know, because a guy in St. Louis named Whitey Herzog would take advantage of our weaknesses. And he did all that. And once we accomplished all the things that I thought were weaknesses in our ball club, I knew we were going to dominate. And even in 86, Whitey Herzog in the first month said, we ain't catching the Mets. Nobody is. We're talking right now with Davey Johnson, former manager of the New York Mets. And do you think it should be necessary for a manager to come in and and have experience within the farm system to really know what he has there? You had success at other jobs where that wasn't the case, but it had to be huge for you in your time with the Mets. Well, that's a great question. You know, in fact, as I got in trouble with uh, Dusty Baker and Don Baylor, because I always felt that the most important thing to becoming a major league manager, managing their minor league system, know the minor league players, know how the minor league players react to the decisions you make, and then you're ready for the big leagues. When I said that, of course, Baylor and Dusty Baker were coaches, never went into managing the minor league, so they thought I was bashing them. I wasn't. I just gave what I thought was the most important criteria to becoming a big league manager and be successful. How about developing players? It's something with the current Mets team that we talk about. They, there, there's been a lack of developing players. You talk about that a lot, whether it's this book, whether it's Bats, which I just went back and recently read, which is also a fantastic read. But coming up through the minors and developing these players into you know big league players once you get there, and also about the pyramid being backwards, so to speak, where you have young, inexperienced coaches at the minor league level who are trying to win games as opposed to developing these players properly. How did you find that balance to develop these guys so they'd be ready eventually at the major leagues? Well, I thought the most important job uh, coming up to the big leagues is a minor league manager because you got young talent and you, you want to do things that help them express that talent because they were drafted pretty high or whatever. And so it, you guys are cultivating an environment to grow and become better and better. Uh, and I, I always thought that Early on in the men organizations, we did that very well. Uh, then there became some guys like the farm directors that wanted to win over development because then the farm director could get to be the GM. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of problems with that because it's not about winning in the minor leagues. It's about developing talent. And if you do it really good, you'll win. But if you don't, you're going to lose. We're talking again, Davey Johnson, former Mets manager. My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond is the book written along with Eric Sherman. Uh, be sure to, to check it out. Great read. Sal and I both uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, one thing that sticks with me with the book is, is your relationship with Doc Gooden. And as we're talking about your time in the minor leagues, you had a chance to get to know him when he was very young and then have him and fight for him to be on the major league roster even as a teenager. You mentioned how the front office, Frank Cashin, wanted Doc Gooden to change his mechanics prior to the 1986 season. How did that, in your opinion, change Doc Gooden, not only as a pitcher, but I think you think it might have had even wider-ranging uh, complications? Well, there, there was something even before that. They didn't want him to switch hit. Here was a guy that loved to hit, and he was a good switch hitter. And I said, Frank, it doesn't matter if he hits left hand against a pitcher. Nobody's going to hit him. If they do, he'll bury him at home plate because he's got, he throws that hard and he's got excellent command. He said, no, I don't want him hitting left-handed. So they took that away from Doc. 
Uh, and then they changed his motion because people were stealing on him. And he, they also felt that if, if he just came from a set position, it would help his shoulder. I said, holy moly, this is something I would never do. And they did it. They did it without my control because I actually asked Stoudemire, what in the world are we doing with Doc? We're going to can that. You know, there's no question about that. But I think a lot of those things influence a young player because you're telling him he's doing something wrong. And that's the worst thing you can tell a young player. And then you kind of alluded to maybe that led to some other problems as far as the drug use. Now, look, between Doc and Daryl, and you talk about it, obviously, look, you lived it. That was one of the reasons why you guys only won the one championship, potentially, because they never reached their full potential. But how do you think that had an impact on Doc and the drug use? When did you find out about that? Because it seems by the book, Davey, you really didn't have an idea that they were doing any of that stuff. No, I had no idea. The fact is, I was the most... I mean, I thought Daryl might have been doing something, but I never thought Doc would be doing anything. And when he came into me in St. Petersburg and came into my office and said, i got to go somewhere for two months, I said, for what? He said, I've got a drug abuse. Are you kidding me? You know, and he said, no. And so he, he went. I, but I couldn't believe that. That was the biggest shock of my life, probably in my whole big league career. Even looking back on it, there's nothing. That, even in retrospect, you say, well, I could have noticed this or that. No, I mean, it, it, here was a young man that, was happy to come. He was at the ballpark early. Um, I saw him when he pitched in Kingsport. I uh, was the manager for two weeks before the regular manager came in. Uh, great command, great kid. He was happy to be there. I, I had him in the minor leagues. He came up from Lynchburg. You know, I promoted him in Lynchburg, and he won 19 games there. He came up and won two games for me in AAA and then got him to the big leagues. He, he was nothing but a gentleman and a first-class individual all the way through. So when this happened... I was totally shocked. Even with 86, his performance falling off a little bit, as Pete talked about, could be the change in mechanics. I mean, you talked about Doc sweating so much or more than he used to. Obviously, the World Series, he I mean, not good at all in the World Series. They're going head-to-head with Clemens. Never thought that something other than, you know, the different motion or whatever might be affecting Dwight? I wished, I wished I'd have known, you know, because I, I, I'd have taken him into my office and taken him into my house. And said, hey, we got to straighten this out. You're, t- you're too good a talent. Your parents are too good. Your coaches love you to death. But it, it, Doc's problem was that he meant to say no. He just didn't know how to say no. But uh, he, he was too good an individual to get sucked into this. And then once you get sucked in, I guess there's no hard, hard way to get out. What was the, the best moment for you winning in 86 and maybe even game six? But... Uh, in the days afterwards, what what is one moment that sticks with you that being a world champion was uh, was worth it all? Well, you know, I always thought, never thought we were going to get beat that year, and we came came very close to getting beat a lot of times. But when it was all over, and uh, you know the thing with Jesse Roscoe and Hernandez telling him, "Don't you throw another <laughs> fastball, otherwise I'm gonna kill you," you know, <laughs> and we finally win the game. It, it, it was just I was so proud of. Uh, 25 guys, actually probably 35 guys and coaches. That it didn't matter. I, you know, we we reached the pinnacle, and we got over the hump, and it was just a wonderful feeling. And I was happy for everybody, 
Not so much for me. I'm sure you've answered this a hundred times over the years, but again, I've watched that 86 year remember video a, a million times and I love every second of it. And you could see yourself pacing in the dugout after two outs, nobody on down two. And you said in the book, you weren't even nervous or to that point. You weren't worried. Really? You looked frustrated. I could see you looked a little nervous on that video. <laughs> you got it. I mean, come on. You're about to lose the world series here. And, and you know, you were, you dominated. I want to know your mindset. Two out. Aside from trying to get Mitchell ready, what the hell he was doing, making <laughs> making phone calls to try to get to San Diego. What was your mindset? Two out, nobody on, down to what is going through your mind that very moment as you're pacing in the dugout? First of all, you have to understand we came back from three nothing against Nepper and beat the Houston Astros, which was a hell of a series. A lot of people forget about mm-hmm. how tough that series was. They were very matched equal with us. But you know what? I saw the the guys, McNamara's guys on the step and. They, they, there was still another out to get, you know what I mean? And I'm thinking, you know, they're a little anticipating too much here. And then we had a little momentum going our way. A guy got on base, another guy got on base. And I'll be honest with you, I, I look nervous all the time because I always was thinking too much, and maybe I just look nervous. Right. I was just thinking about things and uh, maybe uh, hopefully the right things. But anyway, <laughs> when Shiraldi threw that wild pitch that just missed Mookie, the game was over. The series was over as far as I was concerned. You know, McNamara was going to lose. His team was going to lose. And, of course, when Mookie hit the ball, the first baseman and uh, my old teammate from the Chicago Cubs couldn't field it, Buckner. I, you know, it was – that was second thought. I knew that was going to happen. And the next day, we're down 3 nothing. I Was I worried? Did I look worried in the dugout? No. We came back and won that game. Yeah, after that, a little different story. <laughs> after you came back from that one, I mean, there was no way you were getting stopped. And how about Pete? I didn't know this at all. The John McNamara yeah, had binge. Yeah, where yeah. he called as a catcher, called yeah. a pitch to get you to retaliation yeah. up and in, hit you in the yeah. face, knocked your teeth out, yeah. and you end up getting revenge on him. In the, in the yeah. And I love that you wrote it in the book, too, because I was thinking the same thing. So much for karma. Yeah, <laughs> it's, you know, there's payback in life, you know. And I was so happy because – you know, Weaver was my manager. McNamara was managing this Binghamton team, and he called two curveballs. I think that guy's name was Millstrom. And I said, I ain't budging. And he called me up and in fastball, and I didn't budge and hit me right in the nose oh. and bounced on the field. And guys were yelling, You run. I said, Run? You got to be kidding me. <laughs> anyway, uh, that, it was a great outcome for the whole story. And of course, uh, it's the world champions in 1986. And from there, everything's been dissected a million times. The moves that uh, were made that did not work out. But what you write about is a dynamic change between you and the front office, between you and Frank Cashin. What was that, and do you think that's ultimately the reason that you're not, you don't have multiple rings on your hand right now with the Mets? I really do. I, I, I always, I didn't like multiple GMs, and Frank Cashin had Al Harrison and McIlvain, and he, I said, why do you have these guys? He says, I'm teaching to be GMs. I said, well, I just want to deal with you. But he said, well, I'm teaching these guys to be GMs, so they're going to go with you on the road. And we're gonna... Well, now I was dealing with three guys, and uh, three guys are hard to convince. You know, I mean, we ended up trading McReynolds uh, for my favorite player of all time. Uh, and went to had MVP years with the Giants. Mitchell for McReynolds? Mitchell for Mitchell, McReynolds. yeah. Uh, and then we traded Dykstra and McDowell for a second baseman. You know, I knew second basemen couldn't play center field because I was one. <laughs> you know? But uh, things just – but I, it was up at tr- what I call the triumphant, you know. And uh, 
And they all went on to be, I guess, good GMs. Harrison, no. McElvain. Yeah, no, they didn't. They, they, gave, they were bad. Harrison and McElvain, as clueless as you can be. And how about the way that they fired you? After all the winning that you did, dealing with that triumvirate, as you yeah. said, I mean, who, uh, again, showed their ineptitude in the years following your dismissal. But, David, the way that they fired you, basically go out the back door of the hotel, yeah. that's it, game over. You don't get to address your team or nothing. That, all those that, guys are winning. You know, I, you know I, I was trying to be a good trooper, and I said, I, I hate this. I can't talk to my players. They said, you know, it'd be better if you go out because Buddy will make a better transition than if you just go out the back door and, you know, and get, go to the airport. Uh, that hurt my feelings, but I wanted to be a good trooper, so I did it. And um, th- that's one, one of the biggest regrets I've had in baseball is not being able to come back to my guys and say, I'm sorry I, they fired me, I got to go, but thank you for all you've done for me. Is there anything, as far as your relationship with Cashin in the front office and how it changed after 86, is there any conversation that, in retrospect, you think you could have had with Cashin or, or maybe the other way around that would have led to a, a different outcome and you having more influence on those personnel decisions than what happened? Well, you can ask Harrison and McIlvain, but, I, you know, when you have three general managers, and to me the most important guy with the most information is the field manager which is me. But if you're trying to explain it to one guy at one time, another guy, not, you may not come across the way you want to all the times. And I guess I didn't because obviously they got rid of my ass. And so <laughs> I, I went down to Florida and started, you know, playing golf. You know, you write a lot and with the other teams, the Orioles, Dodgers, Reds, you always had an idea of who you liked, who you wanted on your team. Did you ever have an interest in becoming a front office person? Not in, not in my lifetime. I love being on the field. I love being close to players. I felt their suffering, and I felt what they were trying to establish, and uh, I loved them for it because I could relate to that. Uh, I didn't want to get, although I thought the higher you got up, the smarter you got because you're looking down. Uh, but I never wanted to go there. But I, I agree with Pete. I mean, the writing is on the wall for you to be the way you assembled the team, or at least had an idea of okay, I need this guy to do this, this guy to do that. It does sound like you were, you know, somewhat of a GM trying to put the pieces together. Now, nowadays, David, they never let you do that. I mean, they want a puppet down there. They want to print out all the stats, which we'll get to. I know you, you were ahead of everybody. They want to print out all the stats in the computer and then tell you the puppet manager to go out there and make your lineup. That, that dynamic can't work, can it? No possibility. You know, it, it, you know, I, I was been doing computer stuff for a long time. And you know what? I want to tell these young experts up there in the front office, whatever, you put garbage in the computer and you're going to get garbage out. <laughs> what should they be looking at? Well, they should be looking at, you know, guy's strokes, you know, his approach to the ball, not his launch angle and not his velocity off the bat. I mean, this is all a crap. It means nothing in, 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 the, in a teaching. It's not a teaching tool. But they're talking about launch angle. And, and, and you know what? They're, they're actually promoting a longer swing. And the best hitters in baseball have always had a shorter string. You know, these guys are idiots. So, so everybody's going to hit, end up hitting about 250, strike out 150 times. And maybe they'll launch some because they started their swing early. But that's not basic. And it makes for a bad product. But you were you used to do that years and years and years ago, put you know, lineups together based on some information you had. What information was that? And and how did that lead to you then having platoon players and going based on a lot of matchups? Well, first of all, Earnshaw Cook, who I had lunch with, he wrote a book called Percentage Baseball. 
he was the first guy that ever thought about putting in uh, the walks into an on-base percentage thing for hitters. And he came out and he said, if you hit the guy with the highest on-base percentage first and, and follow down that path to the guy with the lowest last, you have a chance to score more runs. And he's right. But there's a little human element in there. If you put some guys that get on base very quickly in front of your run producers, that's a better lineup. And he also believed a lot of crap, too. He also well, lots of we're seeing, like yeah. uh, starting a relief pitcher for the first yeah, couple right. of batters and then yeah. going to a starter, yeah. and the Rays have been doing that. Yeah, I mean, they're full of <laughs> shit. <Excuse laughs> but anyway, right. you know, uh, the on-base percentage is a very important role. Set it, mm-hmm. the more guys, and that, that's another thing, hitting the pitcher eighth, that's a, it's a violation of mathematics. You know, that may look geniusly for some guy up there because now maybe a night, another guy can get on face base in front of some good hitters, mm-hmm. but the, he's not going to come up but bat again. You know, so that wipes all well, that crap uh, yeah, out. And that doesn't make any sense to me because based on your theory, right, their whole theory, well, on-base percentage and all that, oh, you should bat your best hitter second so he gets more bats as opposed to third or fourth or whatever. So then you're telling me that on, on one side, and then you're telling me you're batting the pitcher, the worst hitter, in a higher spot in the order. Well, it's the just, pitchers aren't going as deep anymore either. That's got to be a factor in all this, right? But, but why would you bat a pitcher before a position player? It doesn't make it, any it sense. It doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's, it's idiotic. It's idiotic. You know, you want me to, you know what, I, I could, I have four letter words that would fit it better, but I won't go into that now. <laughs> they, they won't be able to air. Sure. <laughs> well, how about a couple of fun stories here? Uh, I think today it would be hard to imagine a player slugging a manager at any point in the game. You were on both sides of uh, that situation throughout your baseball yes, career. I have. I mean, I slugged Eddie Matthews and Kevin Mitchell slugged me. <laughs> so, I mean, hey, but he's I, your favorite player of all time. Yeah, you said I, earlier. He is. Kevin's my favorite player of all time. And, um. Uh, he he pushed me, and I swung at him, and then he hit me in the head. I thought it was a bowling ball hit me in the head. <laughs> and Eddie Matthews told me to hit him, mm-hmm. and so I hit him in the chest with a little left, and he, he pulled back his left hand, and I cold-cocked him. And then the one thing about Eddie Matthews, it, it, his last regret in life was that he wished he'd had a chance to kick my ass. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was a great line as well. Another one for you, of course. You're not only tied to the 86 Mets, but the 69 Mets as well made the last out of that World Series. You were complimentary of the Mets for most of the book, and then you said that the Mets were horse bleep compared to your Orioles. They were. I mean, we had a great ball club. But that series, if if you ever watched everything that happened, everything went the Mets' way. I mean, balls would blow away from our outfielders. They'd blow back to horse outfielders like Swoboda. And balls would, I mean, catchers would hit, you know, guys that out of the baseline and that wouldn't be called and that dirt on their shoes. I mean, Smart baseball, Dave. You, you know, it was terrible. Swoboda anyway. could barely catch a regular fly, as you no, said. It, he was catching everything. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it was just meant to. The best to win that year in 69. Bother you more 69 or 71 versus the Pirates? Both of them tear my heart out. You know, but I, you know, Clemente and seeing him play, uh, you know, at, at Blask, I mean, Blask painted. And then the next year he couldn't even throw it in the batting cage. I mean, I don't know what, you know. So it was just fate. But um, we did beat the Big Red Machine in 70 when I was a player. And, we did, did beat the Dodgers in 66. And when well, tribute, I got the last throw of Sandy Kaufax. Mm-hmm. He said that's why he quit. <laughs> <laughs>
Another downer question. Uh, worst loss, 88 NLCS or the 96 ALCS with the Orioles? Oh, man. Uh, 88 was tough, but 96 just tore my heart out. Jeffrey Mayer should have gone to school that he day, should, huh? You know, do you hate him as much as we do? <laughs> I hate the, the umpire that blew that. Yeah, it's a good call, point. You know? uh, I mean, I could see it from 330 feet away. He couldn't see it right underneath it. So. Could Don't even re- get me. Why are you bringing this crap up? <laughs> we did 10 minutes then. on 86. Yeah, <laughs> no, I want more on 86. But, it, I mean, you were there for a long You've had a fascinating career. For somebody like me, right, who grew up as a six-year-old only knowing the, the, the 86 Mets and, you know, assuming you were just a manager, you learn about your career and, you know, the 43 homers as a second baseman mm-hmm. or the 42 technically as a second baseman, winning all those years with the Orioles. I mean, you— Being playing, in Japan with Sadaharu O? Playing with Hank Aaron, I mean, you have had one hell of a career. I mean, my goodness. I, I've been down the road a few times. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I've been, you know what I tell people? I said, you know what? I got fired three three or four times. I got traded a bunch of times. I even got sold overseas, you know. I mean, I got, everything's been done to me. But I've enjoyed every minute of it. And it extends all the way, not just to the Nationals with Steven Strasburg and Bryce Harper, where you were most uh, recently the manager, but you, you're telling me before, even the Jacob deGrom. Jacob DeGrom, I had him in uh, when I was managing in the Woodbat League in uh, either Sanford or Deland. And he, was, he had come out of a year pitching uh, and playing shortstop for the Stetson Hatters. And uh, he was really a great pitcher. I mean, he, I, I used him in kind of a long relief, and I think he was like, I don't know, 4 0 and had a very low earn rate average. And uh, the, he wanted, Jacob wanted to play short. Mm-hmm. That's what he wanted to do. In fact, is he quit coming to the games because he wanted to play shortstop. And uh, his uh, coach in college wanted him to pitch. And I thought he, he had a – I had a great shortstop, by the way, so I didn't play, play him at short. Uh, but uh, Jacob Graham had a great arm then, and I'm loving watching what he's doing now. And I, I know he still likes to hit. And a lot of the you know, the Mets pitchers now, the opposite, they bat the opposite, then they throw, which is weird. To your point about Doc not being allowed to switch hit. Well, now Syndergaard you know, bats lefty. DeGrom is another one bats lefty. Matt bats right. He hurt himself last night batting. Uh, how would you approach that in today's game, try to keep, keep these pitchers healthy? You know, uh, nothing about it. Just let them take BP and hit the way they want to hit. Uh, those guys have great arms. Nobody's going to throw at them. You know, I mean, that, that's a fallacy. You know, I, I wouldn't worry about protecting our would, And yeah, I, I would just tell him, you know, not go crazy up there. I saw when DeGrom hurt his uh, his arm, he didn't swing that hard. Right. It looked like anything was wrong. I mean, I have missed many, many pitches, but I couldn't believe that he even hurt himself with that swing. Would you go universal DH? I know you're a purist. Would you go universal DH in today's game? Hell no, I hate the DH. So you, would you abolish the DH period? I would. If okay. I was the commissioner, I'd abolish the DH. Because isn't it unfair to have one league with the advantage of building a team with the DH and resting their players? or, or just The whole game is different with the DH. It's an advantage and a disadvantage to the National League. I agree. I, I hate the DH. And it, you know, I mean, I don't know. You know, I guess it gives some guys 45 years old a chance to keep playing. <laughs> I don't know. You have two forwards in this book, Davey. Again, my wild ride in baseball and beyond – one being Jim Palmer, who you played with with the Baltimore Orioles. The other being Howie Rose, the radio voice of the Mets. And while a teammate, another you know, baseball guy, quote-unquote, writing the forward makes sense, I don't know how many managers have had a broadcaster write the forward. Why did you want Howie to, uh, to write in the book? Well, I loved Howie. You know, when I, you know, one thing about when I first came to New York, uh, 
and I would listen to the fan, and uh, I would listen to all the negative comments. And so I used it with Howie to show them how dumb they were, <laughs> because I, as the field manager, I knew everything, and they're making comments not without knowing everything. And so I, I loved I loved uh, working with Howie, and, and I would use it to get even with all those guys that call me an <laughs> asshole. Oh boy, David, you you would love us <laughs> coming up on Mets post game. Uh, how about your managerial tree? I mean, I. Wally Backman, a guy who you know did go into managing, but has unfortunate circumstances. I always thought he'd be a great manager if ever given another chance. But Garden Hire, Gibbons, uh, Ray Knight, Bobby V, Clint Hurdle. I mean, you've had a lot of guys. Maybe Bobby V is not necessarily yours, but he coached under you. A lot of guys played under you. Garden Hire still managing. A lot of these guys still managing the big leagues. You follow them, and are you proud of that coaching tree? Well, I don't really give a damn about the coaching tree. I mean, I, I had them as players, and they and you know the guys you're talking about, they were pretty smart guys. Uh, they paid attention. And if they learned something from me, I'm happy. Uh, I always thought Gardy was probably, uh, with all the stuff that he went through you know, in his career, uh, and everybody that said he couldn't play because he didn't have the ability to do this and that, they always wanted a kendo or somebody else. Mm. Uh, I think he probably was more prepared to go into managing than any of them. Probably the biggest surprise uh, might be Clint Hurdle because – you know, he was a really good player, and, but he was also a smart guy. Uh, he, those guys that pay attention about what goes on, and they, and they decide what they like and what they don't like. And that's how you become a good manager. Decide what you don't want to see happen to players and what you'd like to see happen to players. And then you become a good manager. Lastly, Davey, with the book, um, give us a, a taste. This is not you know going into your uh, piggy bank here. This is going for a, a great cause. Give us a sense of what... Uh, you know, this book is all about? Well, you know, I hope it helps young players that are, you know, want to come become big leaguers. And I hope it helps uh, young managers who want to be big league managers. But the main cause of this book is really my wife has a charity for uh, underprivileged young girls, and she has 47 in college, and she gives them mentors and money. And the proceeds of this book are going to go to her charity, SOS, Support Our Scholars. And I'm most happy about that. And that's the reason I'm doing this horse shit show right here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, watch it, Davey. Come on. I, look, there were a few times. I, I have I root for, you know, four teams, right? One in each sport. And I've only seen two championships. One was the 94 Rangers and Mike Keenan. The other, Davey, 32 years ago, the 1986 Mets. So forever, you'll have a special place in my heart. You, I mean, I may never see one again. You are you know, royalty for a lot of Mets fans. So I can't, you can't knock us, Davey. We're nice guys. Look at this. He's giving yeah, you me, can have my ring. This you know, incredible. You're being nice. You know what I mean? You're being I'm nice. holding Davey Johnson's championship ring. Dreams do come true. <laughs> uh, this is unbelievable. I want to take a picture, by the way, with this, uh, uh, if no you don't problem. mind, when, before you leave. couple more, though, for you. Uh, one fun one. Frank Sinatra, you said you were friends with him. How did that come about? Well, uh, I think it was in 66 uh, when we were in the World Series against the Dodgers. And uh, I talked to him then around the dugout. And, uh, you know, I, I met him later. And then I, when I became manager, you know, we just kept in contact. And he, when he would come to my city, like Orlando, he had me, gave me backstage patches. And I was back there with him and all his buddies and, I just had a great time with him. I thought he was a really 
outstanding human being. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty cool to be able to hang out with Frank Sinatra. Another one, now, I don't know how much current games you watch. I know you were big. You loved watching it and complained about your direct TV dish not working out at Chase Stadium. But, you know, Ron Darling, Keith Hernandez, both broadcasters currently for the Mets on SNY. I'm fascinated to know about your relationship with Darling because it seemed like you guys, when you were going through it, you were hard on him. You talk about that in, in, in the book. I mean, he has referenced that in some of his books or sometimes during broadcast. How was your relationship with Darling? Do you still have a relationship with Ron Darling? Oh, yeah. I mean, I you know, you know I have a great relationship, I still think, you know, with all these guys. Darling, uh, he, he had such great talent. You know, when I first got him, I, 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 the general manager – I was managing in the Texas League and uh, facing Walt Terrell and Ron Darling, and they said, "Would you trade Mazzilli for him?" And I said, "Have you haven't done it already? I mean, those two guys are going to be big league pitchers." And so they went back and did it. And I saw Darling when he was pitching for I think it was Tulsa, and he was three quarter high three quarter. And then when we got him, he was more over the top. And I told him, I said, "Man, I, you know your fastball is straighter." I said, "Why are you throwing more over the top?" He said, "Well." Uh, they wanted me to throw more over the top because that would help my curveball. And I said, well, let, let me see you back to your three-quarters, which I saw you when you were in the Texas League instead of three-quarters. I said, man, that damn ball was going there and there, running every which way. I said, why in the hell would you throw a fastball that's straight when you got one that goes everywhere? And uh, so he went back to that, and he took off in AAA. Uh, and then when I got him in the big leagues, it was a matter he sometimes could get too fine. You know, I guess being from Yale – they think they can dot the eye on the outside black. Uh, he got a little too fine there, and uh, but he came back. He had great stuff. Did he understand your standard deviation approach to pitching? Uh, hell no, he didn't understand <laughs> that. Uh, but uh, anyway, uh, you know, once I got with the catcher, you know, I told him sit more on the plate because his ball moves so much. Uh, Darling, you know, would pitch late in the ball games, and he was, you know, should be probably. A, Close to Hall of Fame pitcher. And, and by the way, we didn't even bring up Gary Carter. We know how important he is, but on you know today's Mets team, in the last several years, they haven't had a good catcher, and they, they're built around a young staff. How important was that for you to have Gary Carter handle this young staff? Well, you know, everybody thought that he was just a hitter, and he liked to smile in front of the TV cameras. That's what everybody thought. I knew Gary very well. He kept a book on every hitter in the big leagues and how to pitch him. And when he heard a young staff, he wanted them to do what he knew they were capable of doing to be successful. And that's what he did out of his book. And, uh, and I think that's what made all those guys a lot better because he knew exactly what to call, when to call it. And uh, he was great, a great friend. It was terrible to see him pass. And you, uh, you did address Lenny Dykstra in the book as well. He had his book last year. You start shaking your head right away. What a lunatic. You know, I was fascinated. So last year he came on when he was promoting the book, and he basically started off the interview. I said, how are you doing? And then he went into mistakes that you made in the 88 NLCS. Uh, he talked about your drinking in the book. Um, and then I asked him, who are you closest to amongst the team? And you were the first name that he said. I, I was, like, stunned. Well, you know, I used to play golf with Lenny and uh, Reynolds, and Lenny was like a, about 10 or 12 shots worse than me and never asked for strokes. And he wanted to play me 50 holes, $50 a hole. And, you know, and he, I said, Lenny, don't you want a shot? No, no, I can beat you even. And he'd be down 500 bucks. He said, no, I'm going to pass this hole, and I'll play the next hole for 100 Uh I knew he was a gambler, and I knew that when 
but I loved him as a baseball player. I knew that he would gamble anything to get on base, and that's fine in baseball, but you don't gamble every. In fact, as he came back to me uh, after he retired, I said he was talking to him at some event. He said, I got a, a car wash, two of them. I'm making 50, they're worth about 55 million. I'm selling them. I said, no, don't sell them. Just keep using the money. No, I'm selling them. <laughs> and then he sold them and then he got his cash and he was making money in the stock market. I said, I wouldn't follow any of his trades because he's going to go double, triple up. He's going to try to make a billion dollars mm -hmm. and he's going to lose. And that's what happened. I feel so sorry for him. But Lenny's a risk taker. Big time risk taker. Uh, Did I'll, any of his accusations hurt you personally? Hell no. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, we all drank a little bit, you know, during those, you know, on the flights. Uh, Lenny, I never saw Lenny. He wouldn't have, how, how would he even know that? You know what I mean? Uh, I said, uh, whatever comments he made about me, I hope he sold more books because he's going to need the money. Yeah, maybe even more offensive was him questioning you, blaming you for losing the 88 series, not uh, not getting Doc out of the game against Sosa, Sosa there and Shelby. Yeah. I mean, come on. Lenny is, he is lost. Hell of a player and hit some huge home runs for this franchise, certainly that team, but he's lost. Yeah, I, and I feel sorry for him. You know, and I hear the other day he got arrested and I just, you know, shaking my head, you know, I, you know, you, you can't help everybody all the way through life. But, I, you know, those are some of my favorite players and see them fall in bad times is tough.